Take your Bibles out this morning, if you would please, and turn to uh, Acts chapter 15 and 16. We're going to be looking at the subject matter this morning, the gospel heads west. The gospel heads west. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been in a series of messages on the book of Acts. You can see from your sermon notes page, this is the 19th message now in that series. But find the end of uh, chapter 15, beginning in verse 36, and we'll read down through verse 10 of chapter 16. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come up to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Father, give us understanding this morning uh, into your word. And through your spirit, God, I pray that you would apply it to every mind and heart. God, we thank you for what we see here about the determination, the passion to be involved in missions. And how in the early church, they allowed nothing to take their eyes off of that goal. Lord, help us today to be about your agenda. Lord, help our focus to not in any way ever be diverted from the task, the opportunity of the Great Commission. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I think one of the sad testimonies of human existence is conflict. 
conflict sometimes even among brothers. Now, the classic case of conflict among brothers would surely have to be Joseph in the book of Genesis. You'll remember how Joseph was the favorite son of his father, Jacob. Genesis 37 tells us outright that Jacob loved Joseph the most because Joseph had been born to Jacob in his old age. Now, very unwisely, Jacob made a coat of many colors for Joseph, and he presented Joseph with this gift. And he did not do anything like this for any of his other children. Well, this caused a great deal of jealousy and resentment in the family. And it meant that Joseph's brothers ended up despising them. The Bible says they even went so far as to finding it difficult to ever be able to say a kind word to him. Now, to top off the insult, Jacob one day had Joseph to go spy out the activities of his brothers and come and report back to him how they were doing tending the flocks. Well, the brothers saw him coming, and they used this whole incident as a way to first try to kill him. But then they thought better of that plan, and they planned instead to sell him off to a band of Midianite merchants who were heading down to Egypt. And so that's exactly what they did. And then they took his beautiful coat of many colors, they dipped it in the blood of a goat, they carried it back to Jacob, their father, and they reported to Jacob, is this your son's robe? Evidently, he's been mauled to death by a wild animal. And of course, the scripture says that, that Jacob proclaimed he would grieve the rest of his days for his son. Folks, it's hard to imagine all the jealousy and rivalry and heartache that happened in Jacob's family because of conflict among brothers. Conflicts are unfortunately very real in this world. And again, sometimes it occurs between believers. We also realize that sadly, such conflict will go on until Jesus, the Prince of Peace, comes. People ask sometimes, Pastor, will we ever see peace in the world? Not until the Prince of Peace comes. In fact, Jesus even talked about how as the end draws near, things would get not better but worse as nation would rise up against nation. And so again, conflict's just a natural part of a fallen world. And James tells us why in James chapter 4, it's because of a lot of selfishness. But sometimes there's conflict over just honest differences of opinion. And sometimes what people need to do is just agree to disagree and go their separate ways. And that's what this passage here is all about. Now, what we learn here is how sometimes, even in the Lord's work, there can be conflict. But God is able to use that conflict for good, to further His kingdom's work. That's neat how that happens, isn't it? God is able to take all of our weaknesses, all of our shortcomings, and the Bible says He's able to even use all of that for good. Folks, this passage right here shows us 
how God blesses the spread of His Word regardless of our circumstances. And I think that shows us what a passion, what a premium God puts on the Great Commission. And that means that I, as God's child, ought to be concerned about that which God's concerned about. So if missions and reaching people for Jesus is important to God, it needs to be important to us. Now the first thing I want us to see this morning is the conflict between believers that begins there in verse 36. We see that Paul and Barnabas had a conflict and it's centered around John Mark. Verse 39 says that a sharp contention arose between them. The word is a very strong word. It suggests the idea of differing even to the point of causing pain. That doesn't mean that they were using painful or hurtful words about one another, but rather it just means their respective convictions on this caused the other one pain. And the sad result was that they decided to go their separate ways. Again, though, the good result is God overruled their conflict and he formed two missionary teams rather than just the one. Now, why was Paul so opposed to John Mark? Bottom line, we don't know. It's, except, say, possibly John Mark had affected them to some degree in a negative way on the first missionary journey. Uh, maybe by him bailing out and running back home as soon as the going got tough, perhaps he had some definite responsibilities on the team that had been given to him, and when he bailed out, it really hurt the effectiveness of the team. I I tend to agree with those who say that Paul just saw some immaturity in John Mark. That at this particular stage in John Mark's life, wasn't anything against him. He just wasn't spiritually mature enough yet to do something like this. And Paul was able to see this, whereas Barnabas couldn't. But again, bottom line, we don't know all the details. Perhaps Barnabas was a little overly gullible. Everywhere we find Barnabas in the scripture in the book of Acts, he's a brother of encouragement. He had encouraged Paul, remember, when Paul was first saved and the rest of the church didn't believe yet that Paul was a genuine believer. It was Barnabas that convinced them that he was. But maybe here Barnabas is just being a little bit overly gullible because you see in Colossians chapter 4 we are told that Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. Boy, sometimes families can make bad decisions just because it's family, right? Uh, I'll never forget about a church one time that was ready to hang their new pastor. Uh, this, This was a church I had pastored in the past, and they had a new pastor... And the daughter of this church couple, she wasn't in the church, but her parents were. They were one of the most beloved senior adult couples that we had. 
and their daughter, and I, I asked if there was another side of the story, but as, as far as they knew, what I'm about to tell you is what was going on. Their daughter just, she started taking a liking to another man, and so she abandoned her husband, and she ran off with this other man that she had met and started having an affair with him, and then she moved in with him. They started living together, and pretty soon she divorced her husband. A few more months went by, and they came to this new pastor, and they said, marry us. And he said, under the situation, under the circumstances, scripturally, I can't do that. I can't do that and won't do that. The whole church got an uproar. One of their deacons called me and said, Scott, we are in a mess. What do we need to do? And I said, well, Fred, it seems to me like if, there, if this is the story and there's not some other story, if this is the story, the deacons could do a lot to help this situation out. Stand with your pastor. It's obvious he's making the right call here. Sweet people. Sweet people, they just got cross-sided with everybody in the church because it's one of those churches where everybody's related to somebody else. Some of you grew up in churches like that. You make one person mad and all of a sudden you got about 40 or 50 enemies. My point being, sometimes we make bad decisions maybe because it involves family. The old decision that said, the old saying that says blood runs thicker than water is true, isn't it? Maybe Barnabas is just being gullible because John Mark, after all, is his cousin. Well, with this decision, John Mark goes with Barnabas, and Barnabas walks off the pages of Scripture forever. Now, we, we do. We do hear of him one more time. The Apostle Paul makes a reference to him in 1 Corinthians 9 and, and makes a good comment about Barnabas. But other than that, Barnabas disappears. Now, we know that things change later on for the better between John, Mark, and Paul because as uh, Paul is in the dungeon dying, uh, he's under his second imprisonment for preaching the gospel. The first imprisonment was a house arrest. The book of Acts is going to close with house arrest. The second imprisonment, Paul was taken to a cold, dark dungeon there in Rome, and it's pretty clear to him that he's going to die this time. And indeed, tradition says that he did die for preaching the gospel. Nero, the Roman emperor Nero, had him beheaded for no other reason than the reason that the apostle Paul was a Christian. He was martyred for his faith. And as he's sitting there in that prison and he's awaiting his death, you'll recall he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy and he says, Timothy, I hope you can come to me before winter and bring me a coat and bring the parchments, that is the scripture, and also bring John Mark with you because John Mark is very useful to me in my ministry. So obviously Paul and John Mark, whatever conflict they had, they have patched things up. Of course, we know that John Mark goes on to also be a, a missionary companion to the Apostle Peter. And John Mark is the one who wrote for us the Gospel of Mark. 
Now, again, whether we, how we, however we speculate about what all was going on here, the, the beautiful thing here that I want to concentrate on for a, mo a moment is how God raised up two missionary teams. Barnabas and Mark went back to Cyprus, where Barnabas was from, and Paul and Silas went to a region that was Paul's home. And so, again, we have two teams instead of one. Folks, it can be an encouragement to us that as we're on mission together with God, we can be assured of the fact that He will lead us. He'll lead us. And when our hearts are set on doing the work of the ministry, God, whatever challenges churches today might face, as we're about His business, He's promised He'll lead, He'll lead us and help us. He said at the end of the Great Commission, and lo, I'll be with you always into the end of the age. Now, how should we treat one another, though, when conflict does come up? And by the way, I'm thankful that as far as I know, I'm not addressing anything that pertains to this congregation. Uh, talking about conflict. You say, well, why are you preaching it then? Because it's just the next thing that comes up in the text that we're studying through this book of the Bible. And that's the beautiful thing about preaching through the books of the Bible. You deal with what comes next. But look with me over at uh, Philippians chapter 2. Paul gives us some good instructions there on how we need to relate to one another inside the church. In, in chapter 2 verse 1, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, listen to this, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Not equal to yourselves. More significant than yourselves. Boy, now that'd be a revolutionary principle across America, wouldn't it? If everybody looked at his neighbor and said, what do you, what do you need? What you need is more important than what I need. Then in verse 4 he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then in verses 5 to 11, what's known as the Christ hymn, because it's believed maybe he was quoting a, a first century hymn here, he talks about the greatest illustration of all of the first four verses. First four verses... He said, look after one another's needs. Think of others. Who's the greatest illustration of that? Jesus. What did Jesus do on the cross? He died for your sin and my sin. He didn't die for his own sins because he didn't have any. He sacrificed himself for us. We need more of that in churches today. The psalmist said how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now folks, for this reason, I would say to you, if you have ever, if you have ever been a part of any kind of conflict in the past, where you've been hurt and somebody else has been hurt, like I mentioned, Paul and John Mark double back around at some point in their ministries and made things right. Do you need to double back around and make things right with somebody? For the sake of the gospel, do it. Do it. Second thing I want you to see is the continuance of the mission. 
In verse 41 of chapter 15 it says, And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they knew that his father was a Greek. You see what's going on here? They didn't allow the conflict to keep them from the main business at hand. The main business had been the mission, and they continue in the mission. It continues to be the main focus. Paul and Silas launch out into the second missionary journey. Now, as we study the second missionary journey, we'll see that they traveled mainly by land, whereas in the first missionary journey, they traveled mainly by sea. And Silas, we meet here, and what a good choice for the Apostle Paul he was, because he had been one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. Acts 15 had told us that he was a prophet. And so he was skilled and anointed at teaching and preaching the word of God. And as a Jew, he would have had free entrance into the synagogues. Moreover, at the end of Acts chapter 16, we'll learn that Silas, like Paul was not only a Jew, but he was a Roman citizen. And so as Roman citizens traveling around the Roman Empire doing missions, they would have had some privileges that a non-Roman citizen wouldn't have had. So you see how God has just worked so marvelously here? They they begin their travels. They enter Galatia, the opposite direction from the way they had in the first missionary journey. Now, why is that significant? Because as soon as they enter into Galatia, who do they run into? They run into Timothy, who joins them. Had they gone the same order they'd gone before, Timothy wouldn't have been a part of the second missionary journey. And so again, God is just, he's putting together everything in a marvelous way. He has built this team. He sends John Mark off with Barnabas and Silas off with Paul. Silas replaces Barnabas and Timothy replaces John Mark. God's at work here. Timothy was a wonderful surprise for the Apostle Paul. What a great young man. Remember what Paul said of Timothy in 2 Timothy 1? He said, Timothy, when I look at your life, I see that you have a faith that is sincere. the, The word is hypocrisy with the alpha, the A in front of it that negates it. You have a You have a faith without hypocrisy. Timothy, you're the real deal, and you've got a faith in you that also dwelt in your grandmother and in your mother, and I'm persuaded that it dwells also in you. What a great addition to the missionary team Timothy was. Now, we know that Timothy was from a split family. His mother was a believer. His dad wasn't. Now, young people, listen to me a minute. The Scripture tells us today 
that as a believer, we are not to knowingly go into a marriage with an unbeliever because according to 1 Corinthians 6, you would be unequally yoked. Two different agendas. And I've seen trouble develop time and time again. But now, now uh, what if two unbelievers marry, one of them becomes a believer, the other one doesn't? Does the, does the believer leave? No. Paul said the believer stays because he'll have a sanctifying effect on his spouse and on his children. But Paul went on to say if the unbeliever leaves, the believer can let him go. He's not bound. But believers are always to be agents of peace and reconciliation. But, but we see here that, that it, it is this, this mixed family. Uh, his mom's a, a believer. His dad's not. But folks, we can say, thank God for his grandmother and his mom who taught him about Jesus. As men, we know that the Bible says we're supposed to be the spiritual leader of our home. And sadly, in many cases, that doesn't happen. I would say thank God for all those women down through the ages have, who stepped up to the plate when the men wouldn't. Where would the church be today without the ladies who step up to the plate? Timothy had a mom who had stepped up to the plate and helped him to learn about Jesus and, and took him to church. Helped him grow in the Lord. And because of that, God raises up Timothy to be a missionary partner with the greatest missionary and theologian the church has ever known, the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul ends up writing to the church at Philippi, I don't have anybody else in my life quite like Timothy. I'm going to send Timothy to you, and when Timothy comes to you, it'll be like I myself have come to you. That shows you what Paul ended up thinking of Timothy. Now notice what Paul does. He takes and has Timothy circumcised. Now let's camp out on that a moment. Remember they were going to be going to the synagogues first preaching the gospel. And the Jews would have never even allowed Timothy to even come inside the synagogue. Much less... Stand up and teach in the synagogue because he was uncircumcised. And so to remove this as an issue, Paul took him and had him circumcised. He's practicing here the, the principle of expediency. He's trying not to be an offense. And so when people tried to make circumcision a condition of salvation, Paul didn't do it. He said, no way. Because nothing else can be added to Jesus when it comes to salvation. So like the Galatian churches that tried to make circumcision a condition of salvation, he didn't do it. But when it was a principle of expediency so Timothy could minister in Jewish places, he did so. But folks, what I want you to see here is how they're going out of their way. They're going out of their comfort zones and conveniences to be able to carry the gospel forward. I mean, wouldn't you say, guys, Timothy certainly went out of his way, didn't he? He went out of his way for the sake of 
the gospel. They have the mentality, whatever it takes to get it done, that's what we'll do. Now, notice what happens next. It's a wonderful illustration of something. Paul strengthened the established churches. It says as they continued on their journey, they went back and they visited those churches where they'd already been. They planted new ones. What a great balance. Strengthen existing churches. Help them continue to, to grow and, and be better. And then plant new churches. But we see in that Paul's passion. Paul not only did whatever it took, but Paul also was a very passionate man. He said, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. In fact, Paul wanted to go all the way to Rome and preach the gospel. He said, I'm, I'm eager to do this. I'm in debt to you. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Paul wanted to go all over the place. And then after he went to Rome, you remember after visiting Rome, he wanted to establish Rome as a base of operation so he could continue going westward with the gospel into Spain. I wish we knew if that had ever happened. We don't know. Again, some speculation there. But, but Paul had a passion. Folks, we need training. But as much or more than we need training, we need passion. I think of Hudson Taylor, the great 19th century English missionary. He had a passion for the people of China. He said, I have a stronger desire now than ever to go to China. That land is always in my thoughts. He said, think of it, 360 million souls. 360 million, remember, this is the 19th century. More than a billion now. But 360 million souls without God and without hope in this world. He couldn't get China off of his mind until he went. Paul was the same way. He was a man of passion. Romans 15 says he wanted to preach the gospel where the gospel had never been preached. And so what I would ask you this morning, what I would ask me is what are we passionate about? What's your life's agenda? What's my life's agenda? Are we about our agendas or are we about God's agenda? Are we more concerned with our own comforts, with our own conveniences than we are about the millions and millions of people dying and going to a Christless eternity? Folks, if we believe the Bible, and we should, it ought to bother us to the point of doing something to know that there are thousands of thousands and millions of millions of people all around us today who do not have the hope and the peace that we have. And if they die in that condition, they will go to a devil's hell. That ought to bother us. So we need to ask ourselves, where are we passionate? Where are we involved in the Great Commission? And you don't have to go to a foreign land 10,000 miles away. There are people around us every day by the thousands who don't know Christ. And so you and I together have got to get plugged in. If we want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, we've got to be passionate about what God is passionate about. And don't worry about who gets the credit. 
The Bible says one sows, another waters. But it's God who gives the increase. You know what I need to ask myself from time to time? Who is going to be in heaven because of my prayers and my witness? I love what James Montgomery Boyce says in his commentary on this passage right here. James Montgomery Boyce says three things here. He says, first of all, the New Testament gives us the Great Commission five different times. And he says, that ought to be a hint to us. If God tells me something one time, that's all that's needed, right? If God tells me something two times, I need to pay attention to it. If he tells me something three times, I need to say, God might be trying to say to me, Scott, you're a hardhead. As Boyce says, he's told us the Great Commission at, at least five different times in different places in the New Testament. Five different times. Five different versions of the Great Commission that we find in Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1. That ought to mean something. Secondly, Boyce says of this passage, the love of Christ ought to compel us. When we go, we don't need to get somewhere share, sitting in a home with somebody sharing the gospel saying, you know what, I, I don't want to be here. I'd rather be doing anything in the world than sitting right here with you right now sharing the gospel. But you know what? The Bible tells me I got to be here, so I just got to grin and bear it and be here. That's how some people seem to be in working for the Lord. Folks, as Boyce points out, it's a privilege to work for the Lord. And he says the love of Christ ought to compel us to go. And then thirdly, we need to see the world in such desperate need. The world is lost without Jesus and doesn't even know it. The world attacks the very people, attacks Christians. The very people who come to them with the message of hope and salvation. But we need to go anyway because of their desperate need. They continued in the mission. They didn't let anything stop them. Third thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the counsel of the Holy Spirit. Pick up reading in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Then they came out to Messiah and attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. And so passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul wanted to go one direction. Door closed. God said no. So he turned a different direction. Tried to go that way. Door closed. Frustrating? Probably, maybe so. Why'd God close those doors? Why did He close the door into Asia? Did He not want the people of Asia being saved? Well, we know He did because later missionaries went to Him. In fact, remember, Paul went to Ephesus in Asia Minor ended up staying there longer than he stayed anywhere else perhaps. And Ephesus, the church at Ephesus became a mother church to all the other churches in that region. And so Asia was eventually reached. Just not yet. Paul tried to go there. Wasn't allowed. What's that tell us? 
God is also the Lord of the harvest. Perhaps he knew that they weren't quite ready. They weren't quite as hungry yet for the gospel. And by going over into Macedonia and the European area, uh, they were more ready. God had those folks more ready to hear the gospel. After all, Jesus said in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father's Spirit draws him. So the Father knew he was drawing them right now. And so a, a gospel witness needed to get over to them. And that's why God opened that door. But we see God closing doors and opening doors. Maybe that's happened to you. You try something, it doesn't work. You try something else, it doesn't work. What do we tend to do? We, we sit down and quit. Folks, if God closes a door of ministry for you, an opportunity for you, instead of being discouraged about that, what we need to do is get excited about the door God might be about to open up to us. Rather than being discouraged and quitting over doors that have closed, get excited about where God is leading you. I talked to a friend this week. That very thing is going on in his life. He called me one day. He said, I've got to tell you what's going on. For two years now, he's been trying a certain ministry things and, and, and nothing at all working. Closed doors, closed doors, closed doors to the point that he's beginning to say, what in the world is going on? Got to call this week. He said, wow, wow. He said, and to think had I pushed some of those doors open, tried to make it happen, I would have missed this one over here. God, you see, sometimes we need to see that God, God might be telling you no about something because God's got something better. And so we need to wait patiently before the Lord. God spoke to him in a vision. Now remember today he speaks to us through his word. But Hebrews 1.1 says in times past, before they had the canon of scripture like we have today, uh, Hebrews 1 says God spoke to the saints in the past in various ways, dreams and visions. He spoke to Paul in a vision, a Macedonian man saying, come over here and help us. And notice what they did. They obeyed. If God opens a door for you, and God opened this door, did Paul gather the church together and say, we're going to have a business conference to talk about this for five years? No. When God said, when the Macedonian man said, come over here and help us, what did, what did the group do? We concluded God called us there. What did they do next? They made a beeline there. They obeyed. They went. Folks, what I want you to see is through all of, all of the events and circumstances going on in this passage, whether it was conflict, whether it was closed doors, what did God do? God kept raising up servants and missionaries. And God opened new doors and God sent them where God wanted them to go. The gospel drum kept right on beating. Amen? Maybe I'm speaking to somebody here this morning that perhaps years ago in, an, in another church, 
another church, another Sunday school class or group somewhere in the past, you were a part of something that wasn't right, a conflict or something, and, and maybe that's been used by you and others as an excuse for, for not getting involved. Let this be a lesson to you right here, how God can use even that for good. You see, undoubtedly, there were some lessons you learned through all that. You're, you're stronger today or wiser today from what you learned through that. And so get back in the race. Paul said about the race, he said, I want to run my race not as one beating the air, not as one wasting time. I want to run my race in such a way that I may win. Uh, now, all of us can win in the Christian race, but Paul said, I want to live my life in such a way that if only one could win this race, I want to be the one who wins. Get back in the race. Run your race. Redeem the time for the days are evil. Whatever happened in the past. You might be nursing some wound from the past that's happened. Put that at the feet of Jesus and get back in your race. And keep on keeping on for Jesus. Just like Paul and Silas and Timothy did here. And just like Barnabas and John Mark did as they went there. Uh, their own separate direction. Get back in the race. Am I talking to somebody here this morning needs to do that? Also, think this morning, how determined today are you in your life for, for your life to count for the sake of the gospel? Now, folks, I realize I, this is not something I can talk you into. But I will say to you, if you are not concerned with the Great Commission, if you are not burdened over lost souls, there is something about your faith that is not New Testament. And something about my faith that is not New Testament if we are not concerned and burdened over the lost and over missions. What's your life about? Ask God today to give you that burden if that burden is not there. At least ask God this morning to move you one step closer. At least one step closer. Have doors closed on you. And another door's closed. And another door's closed. And another door's closed. Again, rather than Getting so discouraged over that. Say, God, just, just open my eyes to what door you do have for me to go through and, and help me to see when that right opportunity of service and witness or missions or whatever comes available. God, I'm going to see then, and I'm going to, I don't see it now, I don't understand now, but I'm going to see it then. That thank you, Lord, that you did close doors because you saved the best for. 